last Sunday, when Adam and Esley, Leslie offered the first of six forums about the habits of racism, I fell into my own weak habit of disappearing after the service to take care of Tom and make his lunch. I realize now that I could have attended the forum if I had simply planned and prepared for it ahead of time. I need to know and understand how to drop habits of racism, even those I have been unaware of, if I am truly to be my best self as a Unitarian Universalist. For 15 years since moving to Columbus, I have been telling people I was attracted here because of cultural diversity. In focus groups and other discussions about racism, I always claimed I was well exposed to diversity in my California high school and did not remember any negative tension or undercurrents between students there. I remember admiring those non-white students whose popularity, activities, and talents made them stand out. Now, I am questioning the validity of that diversity claim and wondering if I had been oblivious to the pain of less happy classmates. I checked some facts this week by counting and sorting names and photos in my class of 1965 yearbook. The results show that in my graduating class of 309 Americans, 83% were of white European descent, 11% of Mexican parentage, and just 2% each of Filipino, Japanese, or African-American descent. There were not as many minority students as I thought. They were a very small minority indeed. Now, I wonder if my high school was as culturally unique and wonderful as I remember it. The lack of obvious disturbances does not necessarily mean that everyone I saw walking the halls of my school lived in a state of cultural harmony. And more importantly, why did I never try to strike up a conversation with those different looking students? I had little or no reason to think about racism again until late 2002 when Tom and I moved to Washington DC for my job with the National Guard Bureau. There, I discovered that we were obviously the racial minority. Even though vastly outnumbered, I felt it was okay to board the crowded metro rail system on weekends when we went downtown to visit the Smithsonian Museums. That feeling of relative safety and comfort, I know now, comes from white privilege. But even with that level of some conscious confidence, we did not attempt to get acquainted with people sitting next to us. I noticed that nobody on the train talked with nearby strangers, even if they looked the same. After that experience of feeling disconnected to African-Americans, I have since been able to talk with them, write to and work with several when our paths crossed, especially during the 13 years I worked at IUPUC. I do not consciously avoid encounters now, but opportunities to interact are scarce in my current stay-at-home situation. Perhaps that is true for many of you, especially in the pandemic environment. But does that mean I can do nothing? 
Here I am in the culturally diverse community I wanted, but still not closely connected with anyone in a cultural outside my own. Still not a member of my social justice group and still not acting in any measurable way to prove to myself and others that I care about racial fairness. Is it enough to think fairly about people outside my circle without acting? I don't think so. Please come with me to worship, re-examine our values, and search for answers to these and other related questions as we consider aspects of the proposed UUA eighth principle. Good morning. I wonder what is in our wonder box this morning. Let's see. It's a mouse. Look at that. Well, I wonder why there might be a mouse in our wonder box. It might be to remind me of this book. Uh, Desmond Gets Free, that was written um, by a colleague, uh, Matt Meyer, and illustrated by Kim Pham. And um, I remember Matt talking about being inspired by some of the teachings of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So you might see that our mouse gets his name from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Desmond the mouse lived in the most beautiful meadow in all the land. Every morning, Desmond woke with the sunrise and he would spend the day playing in the meadow. And every evening, Desmond would go to sleep in the middle of that meadow underneath the beautiful starry sky. One night though, Desmond awoke when it was still dark out. He tried to roll over to a more comfortable spot, but something wasn't right. Desmond realized that his tail was stuck right to the ground and beginning to throb with pain. He felt behind him and there was a huge boulder that seemed to have fallen in the middle of the meadow just on his tail. Desmond pushed on the boulder and tugged on his tail. He pushed on the boulder and tugged on his tail. And he pushed and tugged and pushed and tugged, but it was no use. When he was out of breath and had just about given up, he saw a giraffe nearby in the grass. Good news, he thought. Oh, giraffe, Desmond cried. Could you please push the boulder a few inches in the other direction so that I could go free? And the giraffe looked at Desmond and laughed the way giraffes do. Silly mouse, said the giraffe. That's no boulder. That's an elephant that's fallen asleep in the middle of the meadow, just on your tail. Well, if you could just wake the elephant and maybe ask him to roll over just a few inches in the other direction, I could go free. 
Well, replied the giraffe, you know what they say about letting sleeping elephants lie. I find it's best not to get involved in other animals' business. I find it's best to remain neutral in times like these. Desmond replied, well, I do not appreciate your neutrality. The giraffe wandered off and Desmond tried calling out to the elephant to wake him up, but those giant ears were just too far away on the other side of that giant elephant body. So again, Desmond pushed on the elephant and tugged on his tail. He pushed and he tugged, he pushed and he tugged, but it was no use. When he was out of breath and had just about given up again, a gazelle wandered by. <clears throat> oh, gazelle, he cried, oh, gazelle, it seems that an elephant has fallen asleep on my tail in the middle of this meadow. I'm stuck and it hurts. I wonder if you could gently wake him and ask him to roll over just a few inches in the other direction so I might go free. Well, said the gazelle, I see your problem there, but you know what they say about letting sleeping elephants lie. I find it's best to not get involved in other animals' business. I find it best to remain neutral in times like these. Desmond replied almost to himself this time, I do not appreciate your neutrality. Desmond again tried to call out to the elephant. He tried again to push the giant animal away. He tried again and again to tug his little tail free, but it was no use. When he was out of breath and had just about given up for the last time, he saw another mouse wandering through the meadow. My name is Nelson. Nelson, this giant elephant has fallen asleep on my tail in the middle of this meadow. I wonder if you might run over and call out into his giant ears and ask him to roll over just a few inches in the other direction so I could go free, Desmond asked. Of course, said Nelson. Nelson ran all the way to the other end of the giant elephant body and he called up to those giant elephant ears at the top of the giant elephant head, but the elephant didn't budge. The elephant heard Nelson's small voice far away, but he felt too comfortable to move. Nelson ran back to Desmond a little out of breath and said, I have an idea. Don't move, he ran off. I won't, muttered Desmond. A little while later though, Nelson emerged through the tall grass 
And he wasn't alone. Nelson had found three other mouse friends to help him. And each one of them also brought another three friends. The whole group of them ran over to the giant head of that giant elephant. And one mouse scrambled up onto the shoulders of another, and another mouse scrambled up on their shoulders, and then one after another, they climbed up until the whole group of them had formed a mouse ladder right up the side of that elephant. And at last, Nelson climbed on the shoulders of his mouse friends, one on top of the other, until he was way up on that giant elephant head, standing right next to the giant elephant ear. <clears throat> Excuse me, he called out right into that ear. It seems you've fallen asleep on my friend's tail in the middle of this meadow. I wonder if you could just roll over a few inches in the other direction so that he might go free. The giant elephant made a giant low groan. Ugh, I'm comfortable just where I am. Go away. So Nelson asked more of his friends to climb up and one by one they helped each other up the side of the elephant. One by one, they called out into that giant elephant ear on top of that giant elephant head. Again, the giant elephant made a giant low groan. I'm comfortable just where I am. Go away. Then, Nelson, as you might have guessed, had an idea. He whispered to the mice. And then all at once, they yelled out together, Excuse us! It seems you have fallen asleep on our friend's tail in the middle of this meadow. Roll over a few inches in the other direction so he can go free. This time, all of those voices together right next to the elephant's ear were too loud to ignore. I was comfortable where I was, but I'll move over if you just agree to stop making such a racket, the elephant cried out. And then the elephant rolled over just a few inches in the other direction. And Nelson and the other mice helped each other climb back down and Desmond was finally free. Desmond and Nelson and all their mouse friends spent the rest of that beautiful day playing in the middle of that beautiful meadow. You see here, there's a illustration of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who is known for having said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality.
Of a modern Unitarian. He was born Romanian, so don't call him Bulgarian. He's also not from Budapest, Ukraine, or Lithuania. He probably is the coolest thing to come from Transylvania. I am the very model of a modern Unitarian. I'm here because I've lived so long, I'm now octogenarian. With 50 years attendance, I'm a very senior resident. Although I'm better looking, I am older than the president. Although he's better looking, he is older than the president. Although he's better looking, he is older than the president. Although he's better looking, he is older than the pres president. We're educated, cultivated, liberal, and turning gray. We all like Shakespeare, opera, ballet, and we all drink Beaujolais. We're all egalitarian and we're humanitarian. We are the very model of a modern Unitarian. We are the very model of a modern Unitarian. We're ethical, sustainable, and also vegetarian. If you would like to join us, it would not be so regrettable. We have a lot of recipes, and some of them are edible. We are the very model of some modern Unitarians. Our masters of theology have made us seminarians. We never preach damnation, and we don't have a confessional. We're open and inclusive, and we're also quite professional. They're open and inclusive, and they're also quite professional. They're open and inclusive, and they're also quite professional. They're open and inclusive, and they're also quite prof professional. We're always looking for new ways to make the world a better place. The Utah politics ensure we often fall down on our face. We're all egalitarian, and we're humanitarian. We are the very model of a modern Unitarian. I am the very model of a modern Unitarian. Devotion to the evidence has made me a contrarian. If you're the optimistic type, believing everything you read, consider that a friend like me is just the very thing you need. I am the very model of a modern Unitarian. I'm coming out the closet and confessing I'm a thespian. I realize the second line does not rhyme with the rest of it. But being gay in Utah helps you learn to make the best of it. But being gay in Utah helps you learn to make the best of it. But being gay in Utah helps you learn to make the best of it. But being gay in Utah helps you learn to make the best, the best of it. While driving in our Priuses, NPR gives us our news. Mind your P's and Q's, for some of us are LGBTQs. LGBTQs. Some of us are LGP oh, homosexuals. <laughs> In 1993, General Assembly, GA, was held in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the Thomas Jefferson District. The GA Planning Committee decided to hold a Thomas Jefferson Ball, inviting delegates to attend the ball in period costume. Although he never joined a Unitarian church, Thomas Jefferson is often claimed by Unitarian Universalists as an early North American Unitarian. Some delegates to the 1993 General Assembly questioned the propriety of the Thomas Jefferson Ball. These delegates, including African Americans and their white allies, 
read a statement in the first plenary session of the 1993 GA protesting the event. The ensuing conflict sent ripples throughout Unitarian Universalism, raising awareness that different groups of people could have a very different perception of the same event. Reverend Hope Johnson, then a lay leader in the Community Church of New York City, and Reverend Barbara Barbro Hansen, then a lay leader in and president of the Thomas Jefferson District, were both in the middle of the conflict. Johnson told how she and other members of Community Church in New York City found out about the Jefferson, Thomas and Jefferson Wall before the General Assembly began. Johnson said her sister asked, quote, well, what am I supposed to wear to the ball, unquote. In other words, should African-Americans go dressed as slaves in rags and chains? The delegation from Unity Church decided to organize a protest of the ball and began contacting other congregations. Upon arriving at General Assembly, Johnson said she met with the African-American Unitarian Universalist Multicultural Ministers Group and helped draft a statement to be read at plenary. In the end, she was the one to, uh, chosen to actually read the statement. She said she rewrote the statement to make it less negative. When Hope walked to the microphone in front of the then moderator, Natalie Gulbertson, Reverend Barbo Hansen said, quote, yes, you could hear a pin drop. And as that pin dropped, all kinds of things began to turn inside me because I heard what Hope was saying, unquote. As president of the Thomas Jefferson District, Hansen knew she had to respond in her capacity as a lay leader. When she saw Leon Spencer, an African-American who served as UUA trustee from the Thomas Jefferson District, walk up on stage to meet with Culbertson to help plan a response to the protest, Hansen knew she had to participate as well. She said to herself, quote, you are a leader. You are responsible. You can do something. And as I thought those words, I went up the risers and went up to Leon and placed myself right next to him. 13 people had gathered on the stage around Gilbranson, including both Hansen and Johnson. Gilbranson asked the group to go and talk this situation over together and return in an hour to report back to the plenary session. This morning, I have been asked by the racial justice team to preach on the eighth principle project, which is gaining momentum and taking greater shape throughout our Unitarian Universalist Association. Thankfully, no sermon can do it all. And in fact, leaders of our congregation are planning a series of programs throughout this year to help us all learn a little more about this project in hopes that we might adopt it as a principle 
that we will affirm and promote as Unitarian Universalists at UUCCI. After the service today, members of the racial justice team, along with Adrian, and I will offer a deeper dive into the eighth principle and the practical steps before us as a congregation. However, before we get to the practical, it is important for me to speak to the philosophical, the theological, or the very essence of what this principle or any principle may mean for our community. You may recall in the narthex, just inside the main entrance of our building, is a series of seven principles written just above your heads when you walk in. These seven principles are neither creed nor dogma, nor are they dictated from on high by some national authority. No, in reality, these seven principles are guideposts that were adopted in 1985 in a highly democratic process led primarily by women in our movement. These principles have served us as guiding lights, markers along the journey, ideals that can help us know that we are on the right path, principles that we were asked to affirm and promote, and ultimately something we might share in common as you use across the country. Now, of course, just as leaders addressed the language and shape of our UUA principles and purposes in the 1980s, we have been invited once more, now 40 years later, to reflect on how these principles serve us in our current and emerging lives. As an aside, but actually an important distinction to name, the UUA stands for the Unitarian Universalist Association, but really that name is incomplete. In fact, the UUA is an acronym for the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations. It kind of makes sense, right? An association of what? Of whom? An association of Unitarian Universalists, of individuals like you and me? No, it represents an association of congregations, wherein the congregation is a member of the UUA. And so as a member congregation of the UUA, we shape the governance, direction, and yes, the principles and purposes that define our collective movement. Each year, the UUA holds a general assembly, as we talked a bit about over the past couple weeks, at which delegates from each congregation gather to learn and discuss and vote on important matters relating to this association. As an association of congregations, UUCCI has cast its lot with 1,000 other congregations and have said that we will affirm and promote these principles in our congregations. Now for some, the principles are essential to how we understand what it means to be UU. And for others, they might not be something we think about often. I, for one, grew up knowing them deeply as they shaped much of my learning as a young, lifelong Unitarian Universalist. Regardless, what we put on paper, what we affirm and promote, and how our actions make an impact within and beyond our congregations are not to be taken for granted. 
1985, the adoption of new principles was instigated by women who demanded greater gender inclusion at this core part of who we say we are as you use. And that shift, that adoption and revision led to a profound increase in female leadership of women becoming ministers and other religious professionals in our movement. And this inclusion further affirmed our commitment to social justice for all, regardless of gender. Now, I start with this background in part to say that we have been here before. A moment in history when a group of individuals within our wider UU community have expressed concern and have asked all of us to consider how our principles inspire us to embody the values we say we hold dear. The eighth principle is just that, an expression of a principled stance which guides us on our journey in community and in this world. And for those needing a reminder of what that eighth principle says, in the first place, it says that as congregations, we will affirm and promote. That's the preamble. We will affirm and promote, and here's the principle, journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in, 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 and in our institutions. Holy moly, there was a lot of important words in there. So let me say it again. The eighth principle invites UU congregations to affirm and promote, quote, journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. What's really interesting about this proposed eighth principle is that it would be the only one that begins not with a noun, but a verb. And not just any verb, but a present participle, or if you will, our first participle principle. In other words, it begins with a verb that ends with the letters I-N-G, journeying. To have a principle of journeying towards something is a different starting point than the other seven and is reflective in all of our human experiences as something that unfolds, that changes, that grows, that is challenged, that has setbacks, and that, nevertheless, perseveres. Journeying toward wholeness, whether that is spiritual, social, emotional, familial, congregational, associational, you name it. Any journeying toward wholeness is saying something else at the same time. And and what is that? It is saying that as of right now, as of this morning, here in 2022, we are not yet whole. Wholeness is not something we have arrived at. There is a disconnect, a tension, a breakage that calls us to consider, are there relationships to be mended? Are there hearts to be reoriented? Are there communities to to be reminded of who we are and what we stand for and where we dare hope we are headed? Unitarian Universalism has been on a journey collectively 
toward wholeness for many decades. From the 1968 Black Empowerment Walkout on General Assembly and the 1993 Jefferson Ball to the 2005 arrest of Black youth at General Assembly who were presumed to be trespassing on this private conference to the 2017 blow up that revolved around unjust hiring practices at the UUA, we have been on a movement of reckoning with the gap between what we say we are about as Unitarian Universalists and how our actions sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, miss the mark. This journey, the heart of it, is about the struggle to become a multicultural beloved community. Take a second to think a little bit about that word multicultural. This adjective that describes the community, the beloved community we nurture as individual congregations and in the wider movement, all of the instances of conflict in our history, as you use, relate to some type of blockage about who we mean when we say we. The multicultural dilemma is twofold. One is that there are already multiple cultural representations in this congregation and in our wider association. We are not monocultural, singular in culture when it comes to race or class, to gender or sexual orientation, to physical or neurological ability, to education and so on and so on. The dilemma is that cultural diversity already exists in our congregations, but, and this is true in almost all spaces, there is a dominant culture that is nevertheless normative and often valued higher than the other cultural expressions. So even as we are not monocultural, we do have dominant expressions of who we are. That's we in quotes, who we are. In these experiences named earlier, the conflicts emerge when both an erasing of that cultural diversity occurs and when we are resistant to acknowledging that that cultural hierarchy is natural in human communities. Let's take those two elements one at a time. Consider the story that Cynthia and I recounted of the 1993 Jefferson Ball at General Assembly. In that situation, there was a blockage, a breakage, due to a lack of awareness to who we are as Unitarian Universalists, that they are, that they are people, that there are people in our congregations and association that do not want to dress up and recall the slavery and brutality of an era, even if it was whitewashed and convivial. What am I to wear to this ball? Asked Black Unitarian Universalist, chains. The erasing of the very diversity we say we long to embody within our congregation is a devastating thing for those being erased and for our institutions themselves. It's devastating to feel missed, to feel overlooked and excluded, and we all suffer because of it. The first reading uh, in the form of a musical number felt perhaps somewhere between enjoyable 
and maybe a little uncomfortable. And why might that be? Well, parody can be that way, but the song about what a modern Unitarian Universalist is was represented in a somewhat narrow view. As is true in stereotypes, there are some truths. Uh, there are some truths. There is some truth to it, but they are often half truths or even quarter truths where there is much being overlooked about the nuances of our identities as let's say X, Y, or Z. As you use watching that video, we may see things that relate to who we are as individuals, some things that do, and some things that do not reflect our identities. And some will have more similarity to the video and some will have less. But ultimately this expression of UU identity, which, is clearly, which was clearly made just in the last few years in the pandemic does not reflect the totality of existence in our movement and surely in our world. So the multicultural beloved community in which many yearn for is nurtured by recognizing the diversity of cultural expression that is already present in our congregation, acknowledging that there are cultural norms that uplift and diminish certain ways of being in this world. And finally, journeying forward toward wholeness by addressing the realities of racism and oppression that naturally exist and are maintained consciously, but often unconsciously in our spaces. The last portion of the proposed eighth principle relates to the how, my favorite, the how. How will we live by this principle? The how portion of the principle says, by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. By our actions. By our actions. And it is important that racism is both pulled out as a very profound and systemic issue in the history of the United States and still today, but also that there are other oppressions as listed above and many others that intersect with race and create this matrix of challenges before us to overcome, maybe feeling like a boulder or an elephant right on our tail. And yet, we have already stated this as a direction and an end of our ministries together. Here at UUCCI, our eighth ends statement that this congregation set a few years back that you all came up with and approved is directly in line with this principle. It states that as individuals, as a congregation, and in the wider world, quote, we side with love to overcome injustice in all its forms. And this includes, and this includes addressing these injustices, oppressions, cultural dynamics within our own hearts, within our community of care and concern, and widening outward into this precious world we share. These blockages, these breakages caused by racism and other oppressions or injustice in all its forms invites us 
to consider what is at the heart of our ministry, to that which must be dismantled, to be taken off of the mantle of our ministry. This mantle of ministry is something you placed upon my shoulders like a garment represented often by the stoles that I wear on Sunday mornings and at rallies and vigils, this mantle of ministry that you put upon my shoulders is something we all bear to some extent, a shared burden of continuing the tradition of Unitarian Universalism and starting new traditions that expand the circle of care, the circle of our concern, the who we mean when we say we. The mantle of our ministry has taken on new meaning in these past few years both because I now bear it as an ordained minister called to serve this congregation, but also because I wish to be more specific of how this mantle will guide my ministry and life. And also, I've been reflecting on this verb nestled within the eighth principle. It's sort of related to the word mantle, and this is that word dismantle. We are invited to accountably dismantle racism and other forms of oppression. And this takes on different meaning when we consider what is the mantle of our ministry. I think about this this way. What must be dismantled or taken off the mantle of our ministry for us to be the people we have said we long to be in the world. What must come off the mantle? What must be addressed so that the harms of racism and other oppressions no longer permeate our hearts and our congregation and the wider world? And as we dismantle these things, we may consider what remains what will have more space to thrive within our ministries and within our work in the world. That is the invitation. When we work to dismantle these things, what then becomes central? What then becomes the heart of our ministry? Perhaps that invitation to a principled life of nurturing a beloved community is something that we want to be a part of as a congregation. It is up to us, to all of you, like with all of our principles, to decide how will we affirm and promote them in our lives and congregation. I am thankful that as a congregation, we are beginning to explore what this might mean and how it can shape our road ahead. May that road be one we travel, not alone, but together. May it be so, and amen.